0: loud enough, but uh, they need it on live stream as well. So (laughs) again, good morning. Uh, May grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you this morning. Uh, Confession time as a pastor. (laughs) Sometimes sermon titles write themselves. Maybe there's a a phrase from the text that jumps out at you and summarizes the message. Maybe there's an overall arching theme that that captures the gist of the sermon. Or maybe there's just something catchy that clicks with it. Sometimes, however, the sermon title is the last thing I write and get to Rhonda so she can print the bulletin, (laughs) as is the case with this morning's sermon text. And it was especially amplified this week when I could not stop humming or singing Hey Jude by the Beatles. Um, But instead of of, of Paul McCartney reminding Jude over and over and over again to let her into your heart, uh, our sermon text today, uh, Jude, the author of that book uh, that bears his name, calls out to us and says, hey, hi, how are you doing? And so this morning we're going to listen along when Jude says, hey. Um, during the fall, during last winter, Pastor Lloyd and I have been preaching our way through First and Second Peter, and really, you can't rightly uh, study Second Peter without studying Jude. There's a lot of similarities there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there's quite a bit of overlap, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn from Jude. And this morning we're actually going to study a majority of this short letter. It's only one chapter in your Bible, but as you're going to discover this morning and in the next few weeks, uh, there's a lot of depth to Jude. Uh, This morning we're going to approach this text section by section. The first section that we're going to look at is the shortest, um, but I'm still going to ask you to rise as you are able uh, for the reading of God's word. I should say, if you're looking for your Bibles, Jude is uh, right before Revelation. So just go to the end and then a few pages back, and you will find Jude. I will read verses 1 and 2 in Jesus' name. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this, your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us in that truth this morning. And as we come and we look at this letter uh, that Jude left us, uh, that he wrote to your church to encourage us, to edify us, to strengthen us, we pray that you would be here with us in our midst. Encourage us, edify us, strengthen us according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a seat if you would. First and foremost, as Jude says, hey, he introduces himself to us. So how does Jude introduce himself to us? Very simply, he says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word servant is doulos. It literally means a slave. One who is a slave is the property of somebody else. A slave is owned by a master. A slave has been bought with a price And Jude knew that he was not his own, but had been bought with the blood of Jesus, his Lord and his master. Jude was a servant of Jesus. Jude also tells us that he is a brother of James. A brother of James. Now in Jesus' day, people would normally introduce themselves by telling us who their father was. For example, Simon Peter was also known as Simon Bar-Jonah which means Simon, son of Jonah. And this tradition of being known by your father's first name uh, was carried on somewhat by the Scandinavians and other cultures as well, right? Uh, Johnson, somewhere along in the lines, right? You had a, an ancestor who was a John way back in the day, right? I probably had a father who at some point who was a Tunnus or a Tannus, however you want to say that, right? So it's, it's kind of unique that, that Jude here is name-dropping, not his father, but his brother, James. And that this brother was well-known enough to the early church to not need any further introduction. And in church history, there's only one James who would need no other introduction. And that would be the, the James who was the leader of the early church. Uh, the same James who authored the book of James in our Bible And that same James who, by the way, was a half-brother of Jesus. Which means, and maybe you've already put this together, that Jude was whose half-brother? Jesus' half-brother, right? After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children. Scripture names at least four brothers of Jesus and also talks about the sisters that he had. And, and of course, they would be half-brothers, half-sisters, right? Jesus, his father, is the Holy Spirit and and not Joseph, right? Um, And actually, Matthew goes on and he lists the brothers of Jesus. Jesus had returned to Nazareth, but the people did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so Matthew captures the people's uh, response and they say, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary, and and his brothers are they not jo- James and Joseph and Simeon and Jude, and are his sisters not with us, and so if Matthew here listing his uh, that Jesus half brothers, uh, maybe he was listing listing them according to their ages. James would have been the oldest, Jude would have been the youngest. Um, But uh, these brothers and sisters of Jesus, they don't believe that he is the Messiah. How could he be the guy? Uh, They must have wondered. Having grown up their entire lives with Jesus, they must have heard the stories of the miraculous birth, the angelic announcements. They must have realized that Jesus was special, but still they didn't believe Even scripture says that they go as far as trying to stop his preaching, his teaching, his miracles, thinking that he was insane. It was only after the death and resurrection of Jesus and after his ascension into heaven that his brothers and his sisters believed that he was the Messiah. Scripture records that they are present there at Pentecost with the other believers, so they must have been convinced seeing firsthand Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So as you approach Jude and you come to these first couple of verses of Jude, you could ask yourself, why doesn't Jude flaunt his relationship with Jesus? Why doesn't he come out and say, hey, you remember that Jesus guy, the one you worship? Yeah, I'm his brother. (laughs) Why doesn't he say that? Now, well, for one, it sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it, even as I say it there, right? Uh, but in, in, in all reality, any authority that Jude would have had uh, in the early church didn't come from his relationship with Jesus as, as when they were kids. No, like everyone else, Jude was a simple, humble servant, a slave of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, who also happened to be his half-brother. So that's Jude. Let's go on then. In verses 3 and 4, uh, we read Jude's intent. Jude's intent here in verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who, long ago, were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and destroy, or I'm sorry, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude's intent as he writes to us is to encourage you, believer, to fight for the faith uh, the faith, of course, is the good news of the gospel, the good news of, of Jesus' death on the cross in your place and on your behalf and his resurrection over death. This good news is and always has been the central message of Christianity. Uh, the word contend in Greek is epon, uh, I can't say it now, epagonizomai. There we go. And it literally means to exert an intense effort on behalf of something. And crouched in that word is the word agony. It's a word that typically describes physical exertion during a sporting event or in a battle. Think of gladiators in the arena or offensive linemen on the line of scrimmage exerting intense effort. We are to contend to fight for the message, for the faith, for the gospel of Jesus Christ with that same intense energy, that same fierce determination that you bring to your sporting events. And Jude encourages us to contend for the faith against certain ungodly people. Against ungodly people. And there are two charges against these ungodly people that Jude brings in in verse 4. And the first charge is severe. And there's a whole, honestly, there's a whole series of sermons that could be preached right here in in verse 4. These certain ungodly people that have crept into the church were, as as Jude charged them, uh, they were perverting God's grace. How is God's grace perverted? God's grace, his his free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, God's grace is perverted when, as Jude says, it is turned into a license to sin, or as he puts it in verse 4, into sensuality. Sensuality means a lack of self-constraint which involves a person in conduct that violates all what is acceptable. Sensuality means living for yourself, throwing off all constraint, giving in to every whim, every temptation, including every vice. God's grace is perverted when we believe that we can go on living our sinful lives and then simply ask for forgiveness only to pick up that sin again. It's okay if I gossip. I'll just ask God to forgive me later on. It's okay if I lust because this weekend is Communion Sunday. God's grace is perverted when we attempt to continue to live in sin after we've been justified and made right with God. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor and theologian, called cheap grace. In his 1937 book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer defined cheap grace this way. And this is a longer quote, but I think it's it's pretty powerful. Bonhoeffer said, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like, like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, without the forgiveness of sins, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut-rate prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasure from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, anything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace means the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in a a general way, the justification of the sin without the justification of the sinner. He goes on to say, Cheap grace is what we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And in Jude's day, uh, certain ungodly people were bestowing fountains of cheap grace upon themselves by living lives of sensuality, lives of unrepentant sin. They perverted God's grace. Yes, grace is grace. It is freely given. It is freely received. But that doesn't mean you have a license to continue indulging your sin. When Christ calls a man, Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When we come to Christ Jesus, we are no longer uh, to indulge and to gratify the desires of the sinful flesh. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. As Christians, we are to to lay aside our sin, to no longer gratify those sinful cravings. We are to fight against the flesh. And now, of course, this doesn't mean uh, that we are perfect the moment we come to Christ or anything like that. No, we still struggle with sin, right? But, But that's the point. It's a struggle. We, we don't abuse God's grace, but we freely receive it when it is offered. We turn from our sin. We repent of it. We find forgiveness in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Abusing God's grace, perverting it into sensuality is a problem, a huge problem then and now. But let's go on. The the second charge that Jude has against these certain ungodly people flows from the first. Having perverted God's grace, they deny the Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They've they've turned from him, setting up a God of their own invention. This denial of Jesus flows logically from their own perversion of grace. If there, is, if there is no sin, if all sin is okay, then why do we need Jesus anyway? Once God's grace is perverted in such a way, a denial of who Jesus is, our Master and our Lord, is right around the corner. Let's go on. So far, Jude's introduction, his intent has been pretty clear, straightforward, accusatory as well. But in this next section of Jude's letter, it can cause us to scratch our heads sometimes, if we're honest, even as, as pastors. <laughs> so before we dive into verses 5 through 16, I'm going to need to set the stage for this. Um, and first I want you to think about fables and fairy tales. Okay? Fairies and fable tales and, and other such stories often teach us moral lessons, right? ethical truths. We're all familiar with the story of the, the three little pigs and the big bad wolf, right? What's the, the moral, what's the lesson to be learned there from the little story of the three little pigs? If you're lazy, if you decide to take shortcuts, if you use cheaper materials, if you, if you don't do a good job, right, then disaster comes and the wolf gets you. The, the story of Little Red Riding Hood teaches us to be cunning, right, to look beneath the surface. Not everything is as it appears. Or think of the fable of the tortoise and the hare. What's the lesson there? Slow and steady wins the race. Never give up. You go on for a while with some of these stories, right? But I think you get the idea. Fables, fairy tales, other stories like that, they teach us lessons of of a moral or ethical nature. And likewise, in his letter here, Jude looks back to some Old Testament history and to some various examples in literature to make a couple of points, each uh, to teach a couple of lessons. And knowing that fact helps us understand this next section of Jude. Uh, But there's one more thing we need to grasp as we approach this. In verses 5 through 16, there's a pattern that emerges. There's this constant repeat of an example that Jude gives, and then an application to that example. And he goes back and forth presenting this example from history or literature, and then an application to the heretics on how they pervert God's grace and deny Jesus. I've tried to show that in your bulletin outline. Uh, there's a vertical line separating the verses, for example, 5 through 7, and then a slash, and then an 8. And uh, That marks the delineation between the example, which is in the first chunk of verses, and the application. Uh, so with that background in mind, I think we can a little more confidently read Jude and understand what's going on in some of these verses. And again, we'll take it section by section, example and application by example and application. And so first, in verses 5 through 8, Jude gives an example of judgment against unbelief and rebellion. Unbelief and rebellion. Listen to these words in verse 5 through 8. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by by ongoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude gives three different examples of God's judgment against those who do not believe, against those who rebel. First, he gives the example in verse 5 of those who uh, were in unbelieving Israel and did not believe God's promises. He calls to mind uh, the true narrative of the Exodus event when the Lord God, Jesus himself, as Jude says here, saved Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And you, I, I, tr- I you, I trust remember these stories, right? After 400 years of, of oppression in slavery, the Lord God sent Moses to Pharaoh, demanding that the Lord or, or that Pharaoh send God's people free. And Pharaoh denies that request. So, so the Lord God sends those ten plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn son which was remembered as Passover, right? Because the angel of death passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb put on the doorposts. And generations later, the the Israelites would remind themselves that the lamb died instead of us. (laughs) However, as soon as they were free from Egypt, many began to doubt Moses and doubt the Lord God. When Moses was up on the mountain with the Lord God and he he took too long, (laughs) unbelieving Israel told Aaron to make a god for them to worship the golden calf. And afterwards, judgment came and 3,000 of those people died and then a plague came because of their unbelief. And when God's people were afraid to enter the promised land, the Lord God in his judgment said that none of their unbelieving children would enter, only their descendants. Unbelieving Israel served as as an example of judgment. The next example that Jude gives is in verse 6 and it's that of rebelling angels. Look at verse 6 again. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Satan and the rest of the angels were created beings, created by the Lord God, probably on the sixth day, um, maybe on the first day, we're not told. But Satan wasn't content to be just an angel. He wanted to be more. He wanted to ascend to Godhood. He wanted to be God. And in his arrogance and pride, he rebelled against God. And when he rebelled, he wasn't alone. He may have led as many as a third of the angels in rebellion against the Creator. However, Satan and the other rebellious angels will face judgment, eternal judgment in hell. And contrary to popular belief, hell is not Satan's kingdom. Hell is his prison. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that hell was prepared as a prison for Satan and these angels. And one day, when Christ's second advent arrives, Satan will finally, once and for all, be vanquished into the lake of fire, into hell, into his prison where he will face eternal judgment. Rebelling angels, Jude says, serve as an example of God's judgment. And then there's a third example that Jude gives, and it's in verse 7, and that's of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah are infamous, of course, for their rampant sexual immorality which included homosexuality, they were on the receiving end of God's judgment of his punishment. So with these three examples in front of us, the application then to the heretics, to these certain people who pervert God's grace and deny Jesus Christ is found in verse 8. Yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. You can almost hear some some accusation in Jude's tone. These people, these people who have come into the church and perverted God's grace, these people who claim to be Christians but have denied our Master and our Lord, these people. And these people apparently were having dreams, visions that were contrary to Scripture. Those visions and those dreams led them away from Christ, caused them to defile the flesh, by living in sin, cause them to reject Christ by rejecting his authority and even blaspheming angels and the one who sent them. And so Jude reminds his readers and and reminds us today as well that judgment is coming. Just like the Israelites were judged, just as the rebelling angels were judged, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were judged, so too will these people who pervert God's grace and deny the master and our our Lord Jesus Christ will also be judged. There's a second example that Jude gives as we continue to go go through this text, uh, an example and an application. It's found in verses 9 and 10. It's an example from literature about Michael the archangel. Uh, Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. We know from Scripture that Moses died before he could enter the promised land. He was prohibited, in fact, by the Lord God from doing so uh, because of his earlier sins. However, when he died, nobody witnessed his death. He climbs up on a mountain, the Lord shows him a lot of the promised land, and then he dies. But his body was never recovered by the Israelites because something unique truly unique happens it says in Deuteronomy chapter 34 uh, Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord and he that is the Lord buried him in the valley in the land of Moab but nobody knows the place of his burial to this day the Lord God buried Moses body And I think there was a good reason for the Lord to bury Moses' body and not to let Israel know where Moses' body was buried. Uh, And here we journey into the theoretical. We, We can't quote chapter and verse, but we can use clues that we have. Israel tended towards idolatry, worshiping and venerating things other than the Lord God. They had done this with the golden calf. They would eventually worship the bronze serpent that Moses had constructed at God's command. And it was likely that the body of their prophet and of their leader would turn into an object of veneration and worship. The enemy of our souls, Satan, would not want this temptation removed from Israel. He would want Israel to worship Moses' dead body instead of worshiping the living God. And so Jude, here in his text, brings in this literary reference that that people in his day were very familiar with. A book called The Assumption of Moses, or uh, The Ascending of Moses. It was written right around the time of Jesus' birth, and like fairies and fable tales today, uh, fables and fairy tales? There we go. (laughs) Like those things today, the the stories in the book of The Assumption of Moses were well-known, But it never became a part of the Old Testament or the New Testament. And remember, any story, regardless of its grounding in reality, any story can teach us lessons about morals and ethics. And it's the same way with these extra-biblical works, like the Assumption of Moses. While they are not part of Scripture, nor were they ever intended to be, they can still teach us general truths. And so in this assumption of Moses that, that Jude quotes from, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, is doing what he always does, accusing. Lila, you read in our Old Testament lesson from Zechariah, where, where the, the, Joshua, the high priest, is standing there, and, and Satan is accusing him of sin. Uh, Satan brings accusation to the Lord against Job. That's the whole basis of the book there. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as accusing us believers of sin before God's throne night and day. And so in the Assumption of Moses, Satan argues that because Moses is a sinner for having killed an Egyptian, Moses' body doesn't deserve a decent burial. And so the legend goes that Michael, the archangel of the Lord, who was sent to bury Moses' body, is confronted by Satan. And Michael, this ultra-warrior of God who would one day lead the, the Lord God's armies against Satan, Michael is humble. He doesn't presume on the Lord's authority, but he appeals to the Lord and asks the Lord to rebuke Satan, to deal with Satan. No, Lord, you rebuke Satan, not me. The Lord rebuke you, says Michael. And Jude brings up this reference because these people who pervert God's grace and deny Jesus, they do not, unlike Michael, these people do not know their place. They are arrogant. They are haughty. They are proud. They think they are wise, but they're fools they blaspheme that which they don't understand they reject Jesus as Lord and master they bring judgment upon themselves Jude however would have us to be humble he would have us to know our place to not presume upon God's grace and not to pervert it let's go on there's another example in in verses 11 through 13 Jude goes on to compare these people who pervert God's grace, who deny their master and savior, uh, to three ancient evil archetypal villains, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Look at verse 11. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain, to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." If you were to ask a sci fi or a fantasy fan, you know, movies, books, who the worst bad guys from from literature or film in the last hundred years would be, uh, a couple of names might rise to the top Sauron from Lord of the Rings, Darth Vader from Star Wars, He Who Must Not Be Named from Harry Potter, right? These are archetypal villains. They are so evil, so bad, that they become the definition, the embodiment of evil. They're so evil, other bad guys aspire to be them. And in verse 11 here, Jude mentions these three villains of the Old Testament that were so evil, so bad, they became the archetype of evil. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain, of course, was Adam and Eve's firstborn son. Cain is infamous for the murder of his brother Abel. Balaam was a prophet who was hired to curse Israel. Uh, He didn't. Remember, his donkey saved him from that error. But Balaam would go on to lead God's people into extreme sexual immorality. And Korah challenged the leadership of Moses, enticing others to do the same. And these three men, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, were, in Jude's mind, the archetypal villains, the bad guys, bad guy of the Old Testament. And in an application to those heretics, those who pervert God's grace, those who deny their master and savior, Jude gives six different comparisons. Look at verses 12 through 13. He says, These are hidden wreaths at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted wild ways of the sea casting up foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the glory or for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever all of these things that jude mentions are things that go against the natural order clouds that don't contain moisture trees that don't bear fruit in their season those who pervert god's grace and deny jesus are like that Paul calls them, or I'm sorry, Paul, Jude calls them hidden reefs, that's your love, feasts. Reefs, coral reefs, right? Well, beautiful to look at. They can be dangerous to passing ships. Uh, It would be easy for a ship to, to run aground and tear a hole in her keel if the captain doesn't know their location underwater. And then the love feasts, the, the agape meals, were the, the communal meals, much like our Wednesday night celebrations or the soup and sandwich brunch that we'll have after the service. These love feasts were those communal meals that culminated in a celebration of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And those who pervert God's grace, those who deny Jesus, all go against the natural order of things. It is natural once you have asked forgiveness uh, for some wrong to stop that wrong. But these certain ungodly people have asked for forgiveness only to keep on sinning. It goes against the natural progression of forgiveness. And then there's a final example in Jude from literature uh, that we need to look at. It's in verses 14 through 16. Jude gives the example of God's judgment through Enoch. Again, verses 14 through 16 It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Enoch. Enoch was unique. He gets just a couple of verses in the book of Genesis, and they're sandwiched in, in the midst of a huge genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5, but there's a, and there's a lot of speculation that goes along with him. Scripture defines him as a man who walked with God. Walking with God was a reference to his character, to his morals. He was upright, following the ways of the Lord, living in a right relationship with the Lord. Yet what's remarkable is that Enoch walked with God in a culture that didn't. Enoch was also unique in that he did not experience death. It says in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And because Enoch did not die, because the Lord took him, uh, there's a lot of speculation and stories, legends, really, about this man. And just as earlier Jude had referenced a book outside of Scripture, he, he does the same thing here in verses 14 and 15. This time the literary reference is the book of Enoch. And this book was written about 200 years before Christ, after the Old Testament time was was done. And again, the book of Enoch was never a part of Scripture, either Old or New Testament. Uh, The book of Enoch takes creative license, uh, quite a lot of creative license, and invents what Enoch must have seen or heard after he is ushered into heaven. But yet the themes there in verses 14 and 15, which Jude quotes from the book of Enoch, the theme of of God's judgment on the ungodly and his return accompanied by angels are found all throughout the rest of Scripture. We even confess as much as we confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed today. So how should we, as Christians, approach books like the Assumption of Moses or, or the book of Enoch that Jude quotes because he quotes from them, should we wholeheartedly embrace them as Scripture? No, not at all, right? Just as a pastor might quote a movie or a song without fully endorsing that song, that movie series, that album, whatever, so too does Jude quote from texts that his audience would have been familiar with. It does not mean that he gives his endorsement to those works, just to those phrases that or quotes that he references. And again, the the emphasis for Jude is that judgment is coming on the ungodly. These heretics who pervert God's grace, who deny the Master are, as he says in verse 16, malcontented grumblers following their own sinful desires while boasting loudly and showing favoritism. For them, Jude says, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, but the Lord is patient. The Lord is long-suffering, He's not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so the Lord waits, patiently waits for people to return to him. But there is coming a day when that patience will expire, will it will, when it will run out. The Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. One day you will be judged. Yet God has provided for you the means of salvation. Jesus Christ by his death on the cross by faith in his name judgment passes over you for the sake of his son because Jesus took your punishment took your judgment took your sin on himself by his death on the cross in your place and on your behalf and by his resurrection from the dead Jesus paid for your sin Jude, in verse 21, will later go on to say that the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. And if you haven't yet experienced that mercy, if you've never received the forgiveness of sins, if you don't know if the Lord's judgment will pass over you for Jesus' sake, come today and receive his mercy and his grace. He is waiting for you. He longs for you. He desires for you to come home. This morning we have the opportunity to receive God's grace in a visible, tangible way as we receive the Lord's Supper. This grace is not cheap. It is costly. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it is costly because it costs the Son of God his life. You were bought with a price. What God costs, what costs God much cannot be cheap for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the book of Jude Oh, there's a lot in here that we didn't even touch or scratch the surface of, Father. But we thank you for these truths. Lord, we know that judgment is coming. We pray that our own hearts would be ready, uh, that they would be prepared to meet you one day. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus. Thank you for your grace, a grace that makes us whiter than snow. And if there is anyone here who's not living in that right relationship with you, we pray that this day would be the day that they receive you, that they humble themselves, that they repent of their sins, and that they turn to you. You are gracious, and we love you. It's in your name name we pray. Amen.